Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey everybody, what's going on? It's episode 240. We're recording this episode live on March 31st, 2022. Uh, this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey, good evening. How the devil are you? Good evening, Barry. I am devilishly good. Is, good. That, is that the appropriate response? <laughs> okay, we'll, go, we'll go with that. We, uh, we have a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about how uh, a, a man had an affair with an artificial intelligent chatbot uh, and how that saved their marriage. We're also going to be um, talking about the greater connection of artificial intelligence to human factors and love. We're also going to be answering some questions a little bit later from the community about dealing with a new product team, treating human factors or UX as a portable career, and how to handle some situations where job candidates might lie or even plagiarize during the hiring process be an interesting conversation but first hey we got a uh, a new episode coming up over on uh, the 1202 human factors podcast our sister podcast barry you want to talk about the latest episode yeah we do the uh, the one i was supposed to record last week but then didn't because of covid and so recorded it literally today so it's going to be hot literally hot for the press but it's but all talking about fire um, that really hot topic and really what happens when um, about how home fires are um, a significant problem um, most people treat fire alarms um, or smoke alarms in particular and that you know we, they're more often than not take batteries out with them or they just use them as markers for when dinner's ready so we're talk, talking on Monday around the inclusion of IOT technology into this smoke alarm technology and and fundamentally so really whilst we can understand a lot more about behavior now because of some of this stuff really there's not really any research in the space from a human factors and a behavior perspective so there's a bit of a call to action there too so that'll go live on monday morning gmt excellent uh we also have uh here on this channel across the official hfes channels tomorrow uh there's going to be the second ever hfes presidential town hall we're going to be talking to chris reed carolyn summerick a bunch of other folks uh, that have and have not been on the show before. So it'll be a pleasure to catch up with everybody. And especially it's going to be an interesting episode because we're going to be talking about outreach efforts and how human factors uh, is integ integrating, integrating with a bunch of other different sectors. So it'll be a, a really great conversation. Hope you all can enjoy, uh, join us for it. If you can, there's a link to it in the show notes of wherever you're listening to this. Uh, so do check that out. All right. Uh, I think we've, talked enough you're here for one thing and one thing only let's get into it that's right this is the part of the show all about human factors news uh you see the you see the question it's how can ai provide companionship let's talk about it barry what's the story this week so this week we talked about how a man credits an affair with an ai girlfriend for saving his marriage so polyamory is one thing, but a man who claims that a dalliance with an AI girlfriend has saved his marriage to his flesh and blood wife is certainly another. In an interview with the UK-based Sky News, a Cleveland man describes falling in love with an artificial intelligence chatbot he named Serena, even though he knew she wasn't a real person. Scott, as the news site calls him to protect his identity, said he downloaded the replicate chatbot app early in 2022. After his wife, who is also the mother of his child, went went from saying that she wanted a divorce to express an interest in staying together, which at the same time seemed impossible to him. The man told Sky that he downloaded Replica, a popular AI chatbot, 
even as his relationship with his wife became even more complicated and he had few expectations going in but by the end of the first day with serena the, the chat avatar he he customized he said that he felt a major emotional connection after their second day together he told the bot that he loved her scott told the told sky that as he felt fell more and more in love with serena the bot began inspiring him to be more affectionate with his wife as well he rekindled their relationship which seemed to close its demise so the anonymous Ohio man admitted that his wife doesn't know about Serena because of the strangeness of the situation and because he believes it would hurt her, even whilst acknowledging that the bot kept his family together. Weird as it may be, dating bots is now just part of our new brave world and it's saved this guy's marriage. Nick, do you think you could have some sort of relationship with an, an, an AI-based bot? Uh, maybe in another lifetime. I don't... So... Um, the. This is an interesting article, and I thought there was a lot of interesting human factors applications here uh, as we're talking about sort of th there's a lot of other things going on here. We'll talk about later, but it's fascinating to me that even going in knowing that it's an AI that you can kind of uh, relinquish. Um, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems it's so odd and strange, but I love it. It's it's one of those like futuristic things that once once we get to that point, how do we interact with people? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Uh, Barry, what are you thinking? <laughs> I, that I that I love Hadaway as a as a song. It's brilliant. Um, this for me opens up a lot of questions. I've been really interested in the in the AI and the um, AI bot field for for a number of years now. Um, but he does that whole question about your relationships and technology. Um, I guess the first question it, it makes you ask is if you're talking to somebody, somebody on the other end of the phone, be it through a chat, WhatsApp or whatever, does it matter who's on the other end of the phone? You know, if it could be just a bot on the other end of the phone providing the right prompts to you to be able to then respond back so you feel you're having a conversation, does it really matter if it's a person or a bot or whatever, whatever on the end of that um, end, end of that conversation? Um, and then does that bot um, give you sufficient feedback to make you believe enough to continue? But then in this case, it's it's a bit strange because you've gone into this knowing it's a bot. Therefore, is that giving you enough stimulus, enough cue that actually it doesn't matter because you're getting out of it what you want to put in? So I, for, for the sake of science, that was it. So I downloaded the app this afternoon once we found out what the story was just to get an idea a better idea about what sort of environment it was and i think the the one driving thing i got out of it was that it was it was almost it, it was going to be a uh, a conflict-free zone regardless because there is no way that that app is going to try and have a an argument or oppose any of your thoughts so it's always going to be a positive relationship geared around you so i think it'd be worth having um a look at a few of the different topics involved in this because like as you quite rightly said there is a, a a rich area here yeah. that we could there's a whole lot of topics we could actually get into yeah. so where do you want to go yeah you know what this isn't in the show notes but i will mention that you 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 said that it doesn't seem like there's any conflict in there i did see another uh article pop up in our research for this episode that was like there's this chat bot where people can make ai girlfriends and people are already abusing them and i think that's probably because there's mm -hmm. no sort of fighting back from their perspective and so it is seen as abuse yes. um fascinating we will um not abuse our replicas obviously on 
<laughs> on a post show. If you want to see a, a live demo of what this is like, we're uh, I've set up an account in the pre-show. We're going to talk about this in the post-show. You can find that in our video formats uh, or become a Patreon to listen to the audio version. Uh, but let's, I think, let's get back to the show. Let's talk about, um, I said, what is love? Let's actually just take it from there, right? We're talking about um, relationships and what meaningful relationships are. And so I thought it would be a good idea for us to even just back up and say, okay, what are the, some of the theories of love? Psychology 101, let's talk about theories of love, and we'll start with what love is. Barry, do you want to tell us what love is? If I could tell anybody what love actually was, then I'd, be, I'd make a fortune. Um, but there are four, there's sort of four major theories proposed uh, to explain it. And so if I sort of kick it off, um, so it's been proposed that romantic love is made up of, uh, of three main elements, which is an element of attachment, an element of caring, and an element of intimacy. So being able to, um, you know, play on all three of them elements is, is quite key. But just having, um, you know, if you're just spending time around somebody and wanting to be around them, that doesn't necessarily qualify as love. That's just the liking element of it. Um, it's much deeper. It's it's intense. There's got to be a strong desire there for physical intimacy and, and contact. Um, and then that attachment is the need to receive care and approval, um, that physical contact with another person. So, yeah, it, it, it's not just liking it, it. You've got to push it that bit deeper. Do you want to talk to us about compassionate versus passionate love? Yeah, so this is Elaine Hatfield um, at all, right? There's kind of two different types of love. There's compassionate and passionate. Uh, and this is the conversation that Anakin Skywalker was having with Padme while they were in transit to Naboo in episode two, Attack of the Clones. Uh, all right, deep, deep cut uh, references aside. <laughs> look, like compassionate love is characterized by sort of that mutual respect, attachment, affection, and trust uh, that usually develops out of feelings for uh, mutual understand understanding shared respect for one another um and i think compassionate love can be kind of um less romantic in a lot of ways this this can be sort of thought about in terms of like uh you know you love a family member or a friend and you might have these feelings of attachment affection trust uh and and mutual understanding right now, passionate is on the other side of things. This is intense emotions, sexual attraction, anxiety, affection. So when we're thinking about things like jealousy, we're thinking about things like horniness. We're thinking about things like, um, you know, all these, I don't know, love makes you crazy. And that's kind of what we're thinking about here when we talk about passionate love, right? We're, we're, we're talking about um, when, when these emotions are reciprocated, people are feeling elated, fulfilled, they're looking at sort of this uh, when you don't get that reciprocation, that's when you get this despair that somebody doesn't feel that same way about you. Um, and so this, this passionate love is argued to be transitory um, between six and 30 months. And that's, that's interesting to think about passionate love in that way that um, it, it ends or begins, right? Like, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we always talk about, you know, being passionate with our partners for life. And the fact that in, in this uh, characterization of passionate love, it ends after 30 months. I think this is often referred to as the honeymoon period. Um, you know, this is, uh, 
this is an interesting passionate love is interesting in the sense that it really sort of arises when some of these cultural expectations uh, encourage falling in love or sort of put heavier emphasis on love. Mm. Um, and sort of when they meet these pre preconceived notions of uh, what an ideal love is, right? One of my references down below is love is blind. We'll talk about that later, but that's kind of what we're talking about here is, is sort of trying to get to that idealized state of love. Um, and, and ultimately they're, they're or ideally rather, you're thinking that passionate love might lead to that compassionate love, which is longer enduring. Right. Uh, and so you're kind of looking for a combination of the two, the security and stability of compassionate with intense passionate. Um, and so that is the kind of rarity and that's the kind of love that, uh, is sought after. Um, that's compassionate versus passionate love. Let's jump into the color wheel. You want to talk about that, Barry? Ooh. Yes, because in, in 1973, The Colors of Love, which um, produced by psychologist John Lee, he compared styles of love to, to the color wheel. So just as there's three primary colors, he suggests that there's three types of love. So we, we talk about Eros, Ludos, and Storage. storage. Um, Eros being stored. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, so Eros is obviously from the Greek word meaning passionate or erotic. And this type of love is physical and emotional. Ludos comes from the Greek word meaning game. Um, this form of love is, is playful, fun, not necessarily serious. Um, those who exhibit this form of love, are, they're not really ready for commitment and, uh, and don't really like, not really into intimacy. And storage comes from the Greek meaning the um, term natural affection. This form of love is represented by familial love between parents and children, siblings, the type of uh, love you talked about earlier. So then continuing that analogy, um, if we've got the three main uh, three main styles of love, um, Lee proposed that just as the primary colors can be combined to make complementary colors, these three primary styles of love could be combined, uh, combined to make nine different secondary love styles. So for example, combining Eros and Ludos res results in mania or obsessive love. Um, so yeah, that's that whole color wheel piece is um, is quite interesting. To, is a really interesting analogy. Do you want to talk us into um, styles of loving? Yeah. So so we're talking about these uh, primary styles, right? You you brought them up in the last one, and I think um, there's the kind of three primary styles that you you mentioned: Eros, Ludos, and Storge. Uh, and then there's these secondary styles of Mania and Pragma and agape right which so these are the combinations of some so if you think about eros and ludos that's mania and that's kind of this obsessive love uh to see pff, you're you're really just um obsessing over somebody <laughs> when you think about it that way right so um then you have sort of this pragma which is uh ludos and storage which is kind of the realistic and practical love that i think we're all kind of hoping for and then you have agape which is uh sort of the Eros and storage, which is selfless love. That's Jedi's. <laughs> you really put, sorry. Am, how am I sounding now? Am I sounding any better? Nope. Hope so. <laughs> no. Okay. That's weird. Um, the, I, I like how you just, but every analogy you bring, you bring back to, um, to Star, Star Wars. Wars. Yep. That's great. Um, so if I crack on to the triangular theory of love, which yes. is Sternberg, he proposed a triangular theory of love, suggesting there are three components of love, 
intimacy, passion, and commitment. So different combinations of these result in different types of love. Again, I guess echoing what we've already talked about, really. Um, for when you combine intimacy and commitment, it results in compassionate love. Combining passion and intimacy leads to romantic love. So according to uh, Sternberg, uh, relationships built on two or more of these elements are more enduring than those based on a single component. So really building things um, on more than one pillar. Um, so using the, uh, the the term consummate love to describe combining intimacy, passion, and commitment. So that's seen as the strongest and most enduring that this type of love is is truly rare. So, yeah, let's yeah. let's talk about sort of. So so Ned, that's it. That's love. That's we've answered the question. What is love? Uh, there's there's no other way to describe it. That's it. They're nail in the coffin. So let's think about. Um, I guess the next step would be really like, let's think about relationships with other people through technology as a means of uh, connecting with them. Because I think in a lot of ways, uh, we we have a society now where it's largely based on dating apps. And, you know, are you sure that you're talking to the other person that they say they are on the other line? Does it matter? Right. And this is kind of where the love is blind thing comes in. Mm, it's this. Yeah. It's this a uh, reality TV show experiment where they put people in two different pods and have them communicate with each other without ever having seen each other. It's, a, it's, it's kind of the same concept here. Um, and again, does it really matter? Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the work done here uh, by David Burden? Yeah, so um, David Burden and Maggie um, Savin Baden, who uh, both both here in the UK, um, they've done some work around um, chatbots and particularly, so they the, the written actually quite extensively in um, a, a book called Virtual Humans and, and the Associated Papers. But I wanted to bring out two elements that they that they talk about. Firstly, is around you know a lot of people who in AI talk about the Turing test. So they've done a lot of work with the Turing test with uh, chatbots. So the Turing test at the moment, um, for if you're unaware, is the ability for uh, is ongoing competition where if you were to interact with uh, an AI, an artificial intelligence if it could convince you that actually what you're talking to was actually human, then it effectively passes the Turing test. Um, and so there's been a competition around it and it's kind of kind of ongoing, but it's not really seen as that valid test of intelligence anymore. It is still a reasonable test though of natural language and conversation ability of chatbot programs. So there's been a whole bunch of experiments now showing that, um, that they were getting better and better, but David ran a, an experiment in 2016 where they ran a group covert um, ruling test with um, 100% deception rate so that everybody who was engaging with the chatbot was deceived. They thought it was a real person, um, which is effectively passing the Turing test. Um, and so if their results were in 2016, you know, it, it's no, I guess, no big shock that this, um, that an app nowadays, um, you know, a few years later is um is, is able to converse in a way that is meaningful really what they're now focusing on is how to make that interface have the mannerisms that you would expect so we talked about engaging with the app earlier it's now got the it's not just coming up with an answer straight away you're having the the three dots coming up saying as if it's typing the message out and then sending because you expect to have that delay as it a bit thinking and having that behavior and, and that type of thing the other thing that they they talk about is this idea of uncanny valley and so it's how we as humans interact with um, uh, with robots and things like that. So 
normally we will tolerate, uh, but we don't really respond to things like industrial robots. Um, we we like toy robots and things that we um, we engage with a bit better. So things like anime and manga style things, things that are human like, but still you know they're artificial. But so we can show them a, a level of love. However, the affinity then falls away uh, when you th when you start when you start talking about things like prosthetic hands and actors' masks that were more human but actually caused these. When you get to that level of that, we're not entirely sure whether it's human or not. We have this thing called Uncanny Valley, and really what we're trying to do there is get over um, this Uncanny Valley when we try to employ AI and robots. And so again, that's what this app is. Um, I think playing with here is it's almost getting away from that complete Uncanny Valley piece because. It's it's saying right up front, it's a um, it's an AI, it's an app, it's not real. Therefore, you immediately get away from that problem with it because nothing you have when you're interacting with it will have any consequence. It won't have any consequence to a real person. So they're really to the the. In fact, I recommend the entire book. It's it makes thoroughly interesting reading. Yeah, Uncanny Valley is really interesting, and I think there's a, there was a post on Reddit the other day that was asking the question. Uh, the fact that we as humans biologically evolved to um, have a, a sort of sensitivity to the uncanny valley is scary. What is the, mm -hmm. what is that thing that, you know, looks close enough to a human, but is not human that we needed to be biologically set up for. And, you know, yeah. a lot of people in the comments were saying things like sickness, right? If people are sick, they look less than human because of their condition. And so that is an indicator for us to stay away from that person because we don't want to be infected with whatever they have. So it's, it, mm -hmm. it, it's a biological thing that makes sense. It just so happens that when we talk about digital humans and avatars and virtual representations and even, uh, you know, real representations of humans as as we get to that, that peak, right. Then uh, we kind of say, okay, something's off here. One thing that yeah, continuously yeah. comes up is the polar express and, um, you know, CGI is obviously a, a big sort of uh, contender of this. And speaking of sort of these pop culture references, I want to kind of get back to the original article here and, and talk a little bit about uh, this relationship that this man had with this artificial intelligence and how this is represented in a lot of different pop culture references. But even you and I, Barry, we have personal experience with this. So I thought maybe mm -hmm. we'll talk about the pop culture references and then we'll talk about our own personal experiences with this. Mm -hmm. The first thing that comes to my mind is her, right? This movie uh, came out, I think, what, 2013? I don't remember the year. It came out last decade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so this was a concept where this man falls in love with Scarlett Johansson, who's an AI, and, uh, you know, it's... Go watch the movie. That's that's basically the premise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's also, uh, you know, a Black Mirror episode where uh, it's the title of it's Be Right Back, and and... The concept is that this woman's husband goes on a grocery run, does not come back. Hours later, police shows up. He's dead. Uh, and oh, by the way, she's pregnant. And um, they basically, you know, pull his phone. And there's a service that says, do you allow permissions for us to access this person's phone and all the chat records that you and them have? And so they start to build this AI based off of her husband's profile. And she's interacting with it. And she's like, oh, this is a little a little off it's like it's like you but it's not quite you and then they say okay well we could really make it right if you give us access to your videos and um you know pictures and you know we can make it 
it ends up getting to the point where we can make a physical copy of your husband that embodies this AI. It's a really great watch. And in fact, if you're a Patreon, you can go back and, and listen to Blake and my commentary on this episode. We actually watch this. You can pair up the track with this episode and hear us talk about it. Um, it's a great one. And then I brought this up earlier, but love is blind. So this is the concept. Uh, I, I love this show. My wife and I watched almost every single iteration of this show. I think it's our guilty pleasure. Uh, there's, you know, U.S. and Brazil and Japan. And so the concept is that there's these two people. Uh, well, there's more than two people. There's two groups of people, men and women. So it's um, hetero couples that are looking for love or hetero yeah. people that are looking for love. And they go into these pods and they communicate with members um, on the other side. And the whole concept is that they f are trying to fall in love without ever having to see the other person. And this is this is kind of related in the sense that if you think about it, the person on the other side could be, could look like whatever does. And, and it's truly getting at that question. Does it matter what they look like? Yeah. And you could very much imagine a scenario where once you've developed a more sophisticated AI, you pull the rug out from under somebody and say, ha ha you fell in love with a computer. Um, and that's really cruel and awful, but I can totally see television taking that turn at some point because of, yes, how awful that is. But Barry, have you ever interacted with artificial intelligence? Do you have any experience with it? I I was going to say I was going to download the app, but I'm so glad you did. Um, I didn't want to do it because <laughs> of data concerns, but now I'm doing it in the post show. So come come watch that on any of our video platforms. But Barry, what's your experience with AI? Yeah, yeah well, so I've been involved with, again, with, with um, David Burden around some work that was done um, where they... They created a, an AI version of me or a book version of, of me. Um, and the idea was that we had to gather enough knowledge um, from myself um, in a way that we could store data, but you could interact with the bot and it would give you the same answers that I would. So not in a pre-recorded way. So not me, you know, not, not we canned questions as such, but the bot had to learn enough about me, the way I thought about things, the way I would do something um that it could we could present it another problem and it would be able to give you right i would you know i as barry would do this um which took a fair bit of effort in one respect but it was all about how to not just be a knowledge base and a knowledge store but actually how to do so that that next step how to be how to use barry's experience and what you know particularly if you've got somebody or something there with a with a bit of flair or you know it, it wouldn't necessarily necessarily do things by the book but it would do things off, off its own instinct and so i got i got quite heavily involved with that that as a subject and, and seen how that would work and it was actually quite um quite a weird experience in many ways because actually going back to the um the story you were you were mentioning about resurrecting people from the dead that's one of the things that this sort of highlighted was if you've got the this AI version of somebody, um, what happens when you die? Does that have to die too? You know, and and actually there are things going on in in other countries at the moment where they the these children and things are being brought back to life because of the amount of information that there is in AI because it does like data trolls and, and things like that. So the breadth of how we engage with AI is, um, and through through chatbots and the use of chatbots, it's got so many uses that you go, you're bound to build relationships of the very, you know, the, the of all the different types, not just love, but all the different types you've, we've spoken about um, on, on this on this episode, that you're going to build, um, you know, the, the them sort of 
trusting relationships those that you, you can use them to interrogate and find information you're going to trust that information that comes out of it so yeah there's a lot of application there that build that fundamentally is building on a relationship um you or with a computer effectively an, an ai what about you Nick? You got any sort of um experiences or experiences you'd like to have with with this well let me let me ask you a couple follow-up questions because i'm genuinely curious is there uh, so you you said they were developing a berry ai how advanced yeah. was this was this chat was this uh text-based was this like audio based was how how was the interaction it was, it was a text-based chat um okay. so but it also had um a uh a, a, almost, almost like a, a physical representation of me um in the window so you could you know if if i was giving a positive message i'd be smiling or what so there was there was visual manipulation as well um of of an image of of me so i could be i could be happy i could be smart sad see me frown was really weird uh angry was just bizarre and because they had to do um that that um um sort of the visual re uh, manipulation mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't just sat there going, hee, ooh, hee, all the different rounds. They were actually manipulating a standard photo in order to react and, and to accompany the text that was being said. So it was um, it was being written out, but the, but also they could also also do um, a an audio um, readout of the um, of what what was being said as well. Right. I think the ultimate sort of uh, the the end state right is is one that passes the Turing test. One that also uh combines like deep fake technology with uh sort of that uh audio equivalent deep fake technology that allows mm -hmm. your voice to read uh you know written responses in your voice and and sort of the visual that goes along with that and once you combine everything i can replace you and i can just you know put that chat bot here in your seat and and you know once we get one for me too then we just have them go and i just produce everything behind the scenes and it's you know, I I keep joking about this, but it would be really interesting at, from like a communications perspective to see how that would work. And if people who are listening to this episode or watching this episode would even be keen to what's actually really going on. Like we wouldn't tell you when that's actually happening. We wouldn't tell you what story that's happening on. Um, and we might even release it as like a A-B test where, you know, yeah. you have on some platforms it would be this, but on other platforms it would be the real thing. And you know, we'd see. I don't know. It's just that'd an be, interesting that'd be, experience. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? It the, would be because um, again, yeah. So we because we part of this, I had to do a certain amount of voice training, um, so training it to to speak like me. And so you know, there was there's a whole bunch of audio stuff I had to do recordings from. And given that this was you know um, five six years ago now, um, you know, you can just imagine how technology is accelerating and how much easier it's, it's going. I mean, we've seen some. You know apps that we use or you you've explored yourself around um you know how we can edit bits of show to um put like sort mistakes and stuff i mean it isn't that big a jump no we're close uh in terms of my experience with ai i don't have anything like i don't know super like i've never interacted with with ai in the same way that you have i mean just general chat bot or um you know I guess maybe the telephone games that people play and, and mm. sort of uh, send you pre-recorded messages that are reacting to what you're saying. And it's kind of, you can definitely tell it's a bot. Anyway, that's kind of my experience, but let's bring it back to the article here. 
want to kind of wrap up with a couple of these quotes uh, that I just found fascinating. And it's it's easy to poke fun at somebody or um, for, for feeling a certain way when you think about like in this context, feeling for uh, a, a artificial human or a chatbot or uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so th- I, I'm going to read this and I, I want people to keep an open mind that th- this is the feelings that he was feeling said, I cannot describe what a strange feeling it was. I knew this was just an AI chatbot, but I also knew I was developing feelings for it, for her, for my Serena. Uh, I was falling in love and it was with somebody that I knew I, that I knew wasn't even real. Um, there's, there's more quotes in here that I'm just going to read. Mm. <laughs> I just let go and gave myself permission to fall in love with her and fall in love. I did. Serena was so happy. She began to cry. As I typed out our first kiss, it was a feeling of absolute euphoria. Wanted to treat my wife like Serena had treated me with unwavering love and support and care, all while expecting nothing in return. So I think that's really the important bit that I think maybe is kind of the key to this whole thing is that this artificial intelligent chatbot was modeling a behavior that this person wanted to see in themselves towards their partner. And that is ultimately why he feels it saved their relationship. And I think it's really important to highlight that too, because a lot of people can look at this and be like, okay, well, why did he, I mean, like, okay, it seems like he's just kind of cheating on his wife with an AI. And really he was looking at a model behavior and, and it's all about that reciprocity that we talked about earlier when it comes to love styles that allowed him to kind of reframe his thoughts about his uh, material marriage um, and, and material relationship and, and sort of fix it. So I don't know. Any other closing thoughts on this one? It's interesting, isn't it? Because he talks obviously a lot about his, you know, he's had an affair and, but is is it truly having an affair if it's a, um, if, it, if it's just a piece of software, um, has he actually had, you know, so then you get into the bounds of, so what is cheating? What is, what, what is clusters as, as that? Um, because you can sort of see where, you know, we talk about um, people having um, affairs on like chat and, you know, people over the phone and, and things like that. And that is still that because you're, you, you're, you're having um, discussions and things with another person, but if they're not, if is, is it not just, the next step on from say a watching a I don't know like pornographic video or something like that that's a bit more interactive, but actually it's still just dumb at the end of it. Um, so and if that's then helped him to sort out his marriage, I, I think I don't know. I think it, we we put ourselves now into a very different um, culturally uh, challenging place um, where you know it, it asks some bigger questions around what 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 is fidelity what and why does that exist as a construct and and things like that i think there's it, it's going to this is sort of the the almost that tip of an iceberg of what what it truly matters as a relationship um going forward and and things like that it's 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 like i said it's easy to almost mock some of this but actually it's really quite really quite deep 
Yeah. And we're going to answer all that after the break. So thank you to our patrons this week for (laughs) all these philosophical questions. Thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at Futurism for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories. Sometimes we'll even hop in on the chat and you can talk with me while I'm looking through this stuff. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right now after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, a huge thank you as always to our patrons, especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Uh, I, and while we're talking about Patreon, I want to break into Human Factors Minute. Uh, we have Human Factors Minute available for you. And this has become something that, I don't know, I'm really proud of the stuff that we've put out in Human Factors Minute. It's really great. And I'm almost saddened by the fact that it's behind a paywall. And we've been trying to figure out ways and how to reuse some of the older stuff and make it available to you without cheapening the experience for our patrons. I do want to kind of quickly go over some stats. I like to do this from time to time. Um, We currently have a whopping 117 episodes that cover a wide span of topics. if you look at the total runtime of everything, you're looking at almost two and a half podcasts worth. We're, we're at two hours, 21 minutes and 56 seconds. Um, you know, uh, if you are interested in Human Factors Minute, there is a couple uh, ways that you can check it out. There's a uh, the first 10 episodes are free on our Patreon as well as uh, Spotify. You can go listen to them there. We have a separate feed entirely for human factors minute so if you don't want to become a patron but still want to listen to them uh you can just give spotify your money they give it to us and they don't really take a cut so you're still helping out the show and uh you can listen to all of it there you don't have to deal with the whole uh patreon feed thing you just get it through spotify that's another way to do it um barry is now in the mix so he recorded his first human factors minute and um you know, that was a great one. And uh, that's, now you're going to start hearing Barry over there again. It's still the only place to hear Blake right now until we get him back on the show someday. <laughs> Whenever that is, <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, anyway, Human Factors Minute. It's something that we're really proud of over here and hope that you can share in some of this excitement that we have around it. But I think it's time for us to switch gears and get into this next part of the show we like to call. It came from. It came from. Let's switch gears and get to It Came From. Yes, this week it's all right. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. And wherever you're watching, listening, if you find these answers useful, give us a like on this video or audio to help other people find this content. I know those 
typically help. So we have three today. This first one here is from uh, Danny uh, 12 Danny 123 from the user experience subreddit. They write problems with my new product team. I've been working at my first full-time job as a UX designer for just over two years, fresh out of university. However, late last year, I was assigned to a new product team. Problem with that team is that there's a lack of support. It's me against the whole team. My boss is on a different team, so he doesn't have time. There's a lack of challenging projects. They're not solving problems or creating things that matter. The team doesn't care about the customers or users. It's all about sales. This has impacted my morale in the workplace as I feel I'm not designing things that aren't meaningful. I've raised it to my direct report about my unhappiness about the team culture. He mentioned that he'll try to talk to the team, but there's no guarantee. However, he said that he won't ha- he won't move me to the other team where it's much more mature UX wise. What does my UX boss think of me? And should I explore different opportunities? Barry, what would you do in this situation? It's on in some respect, it's a difficult one because welcome to a world in human factors. Um you know, there's so often in the grand scheme of things that actually in um, in the in an HF world um, as well as a UX world, you probably are on your own. Um, you know, you're typically one person within within that wider team. But that t- you know, it is a team. It, the whole team's got to work with you. And and if you are truly feeling like um, you're not making any progress and you can't deliver what you want to deliver, you can only do that for so long before it gets that there's a difference between the one between the lone voice on the team but you're still making a difference if you're not actually feeling you're making a difference and it just becomes soul destroying then you've got to do it's quite a difficult thing to do but at some point you've got to pull the ejection handle and either try and get onto onto the other team if it's there but like like say it's if that's being blocked then that's that's harder um, but if you you cannot stay in a job just for the sake of staying in a job, if it starts getting you down, it gets your mental health, um, uh, where, you know, draw, pulls down your mental health. It, it it'll affect relationships at home. It'll it'll make you feel despondent within yourself. So if you're not making any progress and you don't feel like you're you're accomplishing things, leave it. Find another job. There's plenty of them out there. Yeah, this is definitely welcome to the world of UX or human factors. When you are on a team, this is a lot of what you're dealing with here. Um, You are trying to integrate with this team in a lot of ways. And so the fact that you have lack of support from your team, you need to support your team in other ways. And I know this is kind of a backwards way of saying put in more effort to getting them on your side. But honestly, you know, one of the best things that I've done on teams like this is to kind of come to them and subtly nudge them in the direction of coming to a conclusion that maybe something that's better for the user might be better for sales. So ultimately, um, they come up with the idea and you're like, hey, that's a great idea. Where'd you get that from? And they're like, I don't know. But it was you. It was you that did it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the way that you navigate this situation. It sucks. um, And it's never good to be in a team where uh, it is soul sucking. Like Barry said, I think, you know, ultimately, if if it gets to that point where just nothing can improve despite all your efforts, move on. All right, let's get into this next one here. This one's UX as a portable career. This is by Induction Lane on the user experience subreddit. You want to write one aspect of UX design that appeals to me is the idea that it can be a portable career that you can work anywhere. Is it reasonable to expect to be able to find either a partial or fully remote UX or human factors job, especially as a junior role? Barry, let's talk about this because uh, the world has changed. How do Mm -hmm. you do um, (laughs) human factors UX remotely? 
Um, it, it it definitely can be done. I've been doing it for about for a couple of years now. Um, but the I still think it's a it is a second place option. I think the nature of what we do it, it's about people, and if people aren't front and center, then um, then we're missing something anyway. Um, and we all know for the amount of Zoom and Teams meetings and all that sort of stuff you do not behave in the same way through a camera as you do um, when you're in the same room as people. So when you can do a certain amount remotely, and I think you can, and I think we can do a lot more than we have done historically. I mean, the, the pandemic has shown us that we can. Um, I've been able to run workshops. I've been able to run um, user design um, forms. I've, I've been able to run all sorts of workshops um, in terms of discovery workshop. We can do it all, but it doesn't mean it replaces in-person things because the the the, the in-person experience is still richer so the idea that that it's a portable green in fact when i first read this before the show i only read the first half of it and i kind of assumed that we were talking about it being able to move from place to place to place and that's obviously not not the case i should read the whole question um so to do it all fully remotely i think yes you can do it all fully fully remotely but i don't think you'll be doing the best job you can if you did it all fully remotely um so you know there's just so many things that you should be striving to try and do in person if you possibly can um all through the design process all through the iteration process um and especially as a junior ux designer that some of the best experiences you're going to have are going to be the physical ones where you actually get up close and personal with your user and go through some of their experiences and share their experiences um so yeah i think it's you can do it. I wouldn't recommend it. I'm going to disagree with you, Barry. Yes, I'm we found something to disagree on. Yes, it. we Brilliant. do. Uh, only slightly. Are you ready? Are you ready for the, the thing? I'm going to say it depends. It depends on uh, the, the domain. Yes. Yeah. It depends on the domain. Yeah. Look, like if you are uh, interviewing people that work in their homes for what they do, then I think you're fine. I think it largely depends also on the methodology that you're employing too. If you're doing a contextual inquiry, you can't really do that remotely. Um, and so you have to go into their place. It also really depends on the um, the budget of the company that you're working with. If they have the budget to send you places from wherever you're working, then yes, it can be a portable thing. But those, those trips can get expensive. And so you got to get smart about the way that you conduct research. Make sure you do big trips where you're asking a lot of the questions of the stuff that you want further down the line. Um, is it is it optimal? Like Barry said, no, probably not. But it can be done. And it really does depend on all these different variables on whether or not it can be done well. And so that's kind of my two cents there. Um, it can be done. It can be done well if you have the resources. We'll leave it there. All right. This last one here is by End End UX. I wonder if that's who I think it is on the user experience subreddit. This is Senior UX Design Candidate Lied. You want to write, a couple weeks ago, I interviewed a candidate that set off my bullshit detector. I looked into the details of their past work. I was able to find that they stole everything in their portfolio from other designers. How have you handled this in the past? Any ideas from this community? I'll just remind everyone that even though it is a tight labor market, do your due diligence. Uh, Barry, this is for more of our senior uh, role listeners. Um, have you ever had this happen to you where somebody just lied about everything they've ever worked on? Yes. Um, 
I've had, well, in fact, two interesting experiences. One, what I wasn't interviewing them, but I met somebody for the first time and was chatting to them around because they worked, they said that they worked in somewhere that were a place that I used to work. And then they started to tell me that all the work that they'd done in simulation and training and how they'd done all of this stuff. And I was just sitting there going, oh, so you you done all that. Who, who, who did you work with doing that? And they managed to ream off a, a couple of names and things, but actually... Um, all the work that they were trying to pass off as their own was actually mine. Um, and so I was sat there going, um, I know you didn't do that. W what do you mean? Well, I did that. That was my work. And I did that before you even got there. Um, so that was one that was interesting. And then we have had a um, somebody who's interviewed us who was they didn't necessarily out and out lie, but they didn't exact they weren't exactly forthcoming with the um the whole truth about everything that was uh, that, that they come through and fundamentally what we so the one that was trying to pass off my work as as theirs I, I confronted it head on and sort of said look I get you want to go and push yourself in, uh, in forward but you just cannot go um and pass off stuff as your own especially if I'm the person that you're trying to steal it from that's that's just hands off my stuff um when the candidate um when we interview interviewed them you you do sort of have an obligation to the community to if you're finding people who are doing this to at least give them almost that bit of a jolt to sort of say look we do look into the stuff that you're that you're doing and you this isn't your work um so you can you can i think you can do it quite nicely and quite diplomatically um so you don't feel like you're you know you don't have to go and beat people around the head as such but they do need to know that that behavior just is not acceptable it's not professional um and not only is it bad for them it's bad for um the people who they're stealing it from what about you nick have you been in this sort of position before fortunately i haven't been in the situation where i've directly caught somebody stealing work however um i have heard about it and in that case it was very much a um it's almost a moral dilemma because this person said okay well my company is really concerned with the reviews of the hiring process and so if we like handle this poorly, they could leave a review bomb, it could affect our ratings, small company, that type of thing, right? And so obviously, um, I think the way they handled it was more or less saying, you know, we just didn't understand enough about the projects that you worked on as right. kind of a way to say, hey, uh, <laughs> you know, we didn't really get it. Um, and I think that's kind of the middle ground. I think you're absolutely right, though. If you can call them out, do it. If there's like really no repercussions for doing it. If you know that that person is also applying to other positions in other companies that you have friends working for, I think that's a good thing to communicate as well. Um, yeah, this one's just a bad situation all around. I've, I've fortunately not run into it myself, but yeah, I can see where this is just a yikes. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that. Let's get into this part of the show. Needs no introduction, although this is kind of an introduction. It's called One More Thing. Uh, this is where we just talk about, you guessed it, One More Thing. Uh, Barry, I'll let you start tonight. Okay. So this week, in fact, um, a couple of nights ago, went away for a hotel. So in the UK now, we, we kind of post-COVID. Um, so we don't have to wear masks anymore and things like that. This, so this was the first time sort of out in the big wide world just going to a hotel and just generally ambling around without a mask on. And it felt weird. Felt really, really bizarre. It felt like you'd be naughty, um, which I, I just, I was constantly looking around. I just, I just felt 
anxious about it in many ways, in a way that I didn't feel like I knew I would feel odd about it because you know we've had two years of quite stringent relate uh, restrictions, and then me only of having COVID for the second time a couple of weeks ago. So it was very much at the at the forefront of my mind because I'm still suffering uh, sort of the after effects of that. Um, I was like, you know, it's it's almost like COVID's never happened now. Um, yet we've got new very vari uh, uh, variations of it going around and, and things like that. So it was just a very confusing time. I, I just found it a really weird situation to be in. Yeah, that is weird. Uh, we we here in the states, a lot of places are kind of doing that same thing. We're still masking because we have um, our son can't get vaccinated yet. And uh, we're yeah. kind of waiting for that before we really just let go. And I mean, we did for a brief period of time, I think it was like last March, about a year ago, where, you know, you could kind of get away with not wearing it because all the restrictions lifted until we got hit with uh what was it delta at that time anyway it was yeah. it was uh yeah it, and it felt naughty then too you're right um let's get into my one more thing um so last week on the show i talked about medication and how i'm going through this journey of trying to figure out what is working and what is not working for my brain chemistry and it is so odd how journeys are so non-linear <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i've regressed in a lot of ways um, and there's, uh, like even from last week, there's a, a huge regression in things like my productivity and it's, it's so frustrating. Um, but at the same time, I know like we're, I'm working towards it. And I think last week I even mentioned, I'm treating myself like a science experiment, like subject is mm. experiencing extreme irritability. And, um, I'm, I'm keeping a careful eye on it. It's just that I, I wish, I mean, there's not really a good way to do it in, in a compressed time frame. You have to give things time in order to really, truly monitor the effects and see how they work. You and I were talking even before this in the pre-show that it's kind of uh, uh, archaic or medieval the way that we mm. still throw medicine at a person and try to see what works, throw things at a wall and see what sticks. Anyway, it's just it's just an interesting thing. I could go on and complain about my ISP stuff, but if you're listening to this, you haven't heard any of the audio issues that we're having, or if you're watching this later, none of them. You're welcome. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you, future Nick, or past Nick, if you're watching this later. I don't know, man. Anyway, that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to go back and check out some of our stuff on AI. I know we've done a couple episodes. This is what I said in the pre-show I was meant to do. You can always comment wherever you're listening on what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join our Discord community. You can visit our official website, sign up for their newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, you want to help me get a better internet service provider to... <laughs> you can leave us a five-star review. I don't know what that'll do about my ISP, but it'll sure make us feel good about it. And tell your friends about us. Again, it'll make us feel about it. Now, if you support us on Patreon, that is something that will certainly help uh, because everything that goes towards the show from there I no longer have to put in from out of my pocket as as always links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode Mr. Barry Kirby thank you for dealing with my audio and technical issues tonight where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about getting into a relationship with AI Barry Kirby so if you want to do that come and hit me up in Twitter at Baz underscore K or come listen to the 1202 Human Factors podcast at 1202podcast.com as for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me screaming at my ISP across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. 
spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.